0: And please turn with me in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 12. Again, that last line of Psalm 120 I am for peace, but when I speak, they prepare for war. We see something of that reality here in our text this morning. Here we read of how James is killed by the sword. And of how Peter is arrested and imprisoned. If it weren't for a religious holiday for the Jews, he likely would have been killed immediately too, like James. And so we see the church threatened with this war, this ongoing enmity between the people of God and the enemies of God book of Acts begins with Jesus Christ ascending on high and so when we come to a text like this we might wonder what is going on why are these things taking place and it's very similar to our own lives in this world we can look around and see the state of the way that things are whether in our own lives or in our own country or throughout the world and we might wonder if Christ is reigning on high why are things the way that they are well here God's word gives clear answer to these questions. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's holy word. This is Acts chapter 12. We'll focus this morning on the first 11 verses. This is the word of God. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city it opened for them of its own accord and they went out and they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him when peter came to himself he said now i am sure that the lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of herod and from all that the jewish people were expecting amen this is the word of god Do you believe that Jesus Christ is king? Do you believe that Jesus is really, at this very moment, ruling and reigning over all things? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the sovereign over everything? How about when you consider the wider world in which we live? Or how about when you consider the politics of our own country? How about the state of things socially or morally? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is king? When you think about our president and our Congress or our governor and our state representatives. What about when you... Widen the lens a little bit and consider the world as a whole. Do you believe that Christ is king when you think about countries like China or Pakistan or South Korea? What about when you consider countries like Scotland and England? These are countries that once covenanted together to recognize Jesus Christ as king. But today, that remarkable time seems like little more than a distant memory. As you consider the landscape of the wider world, can you say confidently that Jesus Christ is king? And what about your own life? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is king when you consider your own present circumstances? When you think about the way in which God has ordered your own life, do you see Christ's sovereignty in it all? Do you see how he is exercising his authority for your good as a part of the church? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is king? Not just theoretically, not just in a way which we acknowledge some truth from the word of God, but rather do you believe this practically speaking? Does this have bearing upon your life day to day? Luke's gospel ended with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And Luke's account there recorded for us us, both Christ's death and his victory over the grave. And then Luke picked up in the book of Acts by continuing to teach us about Jesus' ascension into heaven. The apostles were gathered around Jesus when he was lifted up off of this earth and then a cloud hid him from their view. Later on in Peter's Sermon on the day of Pentecost, he tells us what that was when he says that Jesus was exalted at the right hand of God. Well, in Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul explains that there Jesus was exalted above every name. And Psalm 110 teaches us that Jesus sat down at the right of the hand, at the right hand of the Father, and from that place. He does rule and reign over all things. So do you believe what God's word says? Do you believe that Jesus is presently exercising authority over all things as the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Now the reason why I've emphasized this question so much is because oftentimes things do not seem to reflect this great reality. When we look at all of these various things, sometimes it seems out of accord with this wonderful truth. If Christ is king, why do the wicked rule over us? If Christ is king, why do we have a president that openly defies the rules and the will of King Jesus? If Jesus rules from the right hand of the Father, why do we have a governor who calls evil good and good evil? If Jesus is a sovereign king, why do Christians suffer persecution in China, Pakistan, and North Korea? And again, you could just consider your own life as well. You could think of the difficulties and the troubles that you face individually or that we face as a church. What about those circumstances within your own life that seem to say that Christ must not be on his throne? You might think about things like unbelieving children. You might think about things like besetting sins. You might think about difficulties in relationships, perhaps even marriage. If Christ is king, why, why do we struggle in all of these ways? Well, these are real questions. And these are practical questions. And the way in which we answer these questions will determine in some ways how we live in a world that is actually characterized by the tension behind these questions. Well, thankfully, God's word never shies away from difficult questions. Instead, God's word tackles these realities head on. Just look at this text before us this morning. It begins by setting before us a wicked king who is reigning contrary to the will of Jesus Christ, his revealed will. Our text begins by bringing before our attention a wicked king who suddenly executes a faithful apostle of Jesus. And then simply because this pleases the populace, he decides to go on to execute even more. And so the text brings to us the question, is Jesus Christ king? And if he is, why is this wicked man Herod allowed to carry out such evil? God's word brings these questions to our minds to provide a wonderful answer. So let's look to God's word together to answer these questions. Let's begin this morning by considering the presence of King Herod. The presence of King Herod. Why is King Herod allowed to kill James with the sword? And then why is he allowed to arrest Peter with the same intentions? I mean, God's word presently or presents to us King Herod as a man who exercises real authority in this world. He exerts a real authority that presses upon God's people powerfully. Suddenly and without any real explanation, James is beheaded. Was Herod provoked? Perhaps by the preaching of James, was he preaching on behalf of King Jesus in a way that provoked Herod? Or was he simply looking for a way to regain some sort of standing with his own people? We don't know. God's word doesn't add any explanation and that might only add to our consternation. Why is this wicked king ruling? Again, the book of Acts begins by showing how the risen Christ ascended on high and how he took his seat upon his throne in heaven. So why does this faithful servant of the king suddenly lose his life at the whim of a wicked ruler? Well, When King Herod sees that this execution of James pleases the Jews, he immediately moves to arrest Peter with plans to do the same to him However, because his arrest happens during the days of unleavened bread, a Jewish holiday, he cannot execute Peter immediately, and so he shackles Peter with two chains to two guards. And then he places Peter in this prison cell locked tight, and then that cell is guarded by many guards so that Peter is clearly and powerfully locked away in this prison Humanly speaking, Peter is faced with an unstoppable power. If it were only the chains, he probably couldn't free himself. If it were only the guards, he would have known he was overmatched. If he could somehow get past all of these, he'd still have to unlock his own cell. And if he got out of the prison, he would still have to deal with a locked city gate. Humanly speaking, Peter has no hope. Humanly speaking, there's nothing for Peter to set his eyes upon to encourage his own heart. He is facing what appears to be insurmountable obstacles. Well, when we survey the history of the world, we see that this text is not abnormal in the history of God's people. In God's word, we might remember how Israel was enslaved in Egypt. And we might ask, why, Lord? We might also think about how Israel was exiled in Babylon. And we might again wonder, why? Here in the book of Acts, we've already seen how persecution came upon the church under the reign of the exalted Christ. Why? Church history goes on to provide us many more examples Not long after the book of Acts, Nero will come to power and unleash a terrible persecution on the church. Following him, Diocletian, the same. Later on, the rise of Islam will unleash terror upon Christians throughout Byzantium and uh, northern Africa. The medieval age brought its own various persecution, and then the Reformation itself brought upon the church an entirely new wave of persecution. And then, according to a number of different reports, in the 20th century and in the beginning of the 21st century, Christians have actually, more Christians have actually been killed for their faith than in all of these other ages combined. This relatively short period in history has seen the likes of men like Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Mao Zedong, and others, each of these a sort of herod. Of his own day. And all Christians have suffered in prison cells, gulags, concentration camps, detention centers, labor camps, and much more. Again, each of these representing another example of a King Herod whose rule makes us wonder why. Why the presence of Herod? Why do wicked rulers reign? Why are there so many in places of power today who call evil good and good evil? Why don't we see those in power serving according to the will of King Jesus? What are we to make of the presence of a King Herod back then? And what are we to make of all of these Herods throughout history? And even the Herods, so to speak, today. Does the presence of a King Herod mean that King Jesus does not reign? Does his wicked rule mean that Christ must not be on his throne? Well, if we are to make sense of these things, if we are to answer these questions, we need to remember two different points in redemptive history. The first of these is found all the way back in the garden. When sin entered into the world, God immediately responded by giving a promise regarding the Savior. He promised that through the seed of the woman would come deliverance. But God also told us that in the time in between there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That all of human history would play itself out within the context of this ongoing enmity between these two seeds. And ever since, human history has testified to that ongoing enmity. And that ongoing enmity would not be ended until the promised coming of King Jesus. And now we ask, okay, well Christ has come. So why isn't the enmity ended? Well, that's why we need to go to the second point in redemptive history. Christ has come. And when he sent his disciples out into the world, he said to them, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You see, Jesus, King Jesus, was reframing the expectations of his disciples. And he was teaching them that the church would continue to live in this context marked by enmity within this world. Christ's first coming did not put an end to that enmity, but it did mark the beginning of the end. When Jesus rose from the grave, he did indeed conquer sin in death, but because... He had many millions to bring into his kingdom. He sent the church out into this world to continue to press on within this enmity until he comes again. And that is when the enmity will be ended. And that is what explains the presence of a King Herod. This explains the way in which our lives play out in the world today. So do you believe that Jesus Christ is king? Seeing how he ordered all things back then, can you see how he is continuing to order all things in the same way today? In our text, Jesus was reigning over King Herod. And he was even ordering the cruelty of King Herod to serve and to advance the advancement of his own kingdom. Later on in verse 24, it tells us that the word of God increased and multiplied. God reordered Herod's attacks to bring many people into Christ's kingdom. Well, seeing that this is how King Jesus so ordered the lives of his people, seeing the suffering of James and Peter, we need to then turn our attention to the other king in the text. We need to turn our attention to King Jesus. So let's consider, secondly, the power of King Jesus. Psalm 2 is a song that reflects this reality, the reality of that enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It begins by speaking about the seed of the serpent saying, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us, Psalm 2 teaches us to expect this ongoing enmity. It teaches us that until Christ puts an end to that enmity, we will continue to see those who strive against the Lord and his anointed. But then that psalm goes on to teach us of Christ and his power. Verse 4 gives us the other side of the story. And it says, He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. As powerful as King Herod seems to be here in our text, Jesus Christ is seated upon his throne laughing. And as our text unfolds, we see what seems to be the power of King Herod melt like wax before a flame the very moment that Jesus decides to act. Let's look upon the power of King Jesus. Think about Peter first. Do you remember all of those obstacles that appeared too powerful to oppose? Think about the chains that bound him to two guards. When King Jesus sent in his angel, those iron chains fell off of his hands. Think about those soldiers beside him. Think about those soldiers at the cell door. Think about the other soldiers that would be surrounding that prison, all intended to keep Peter within. Well, when the angel comes He leads Peter out and the soldiers are nowhere to be found. They are silent. They don't even offer any opposition because of the power of King Jesus. And finally, think about that city gate to which they come. They come to the locked city gate and it opens in humble obedience to this messenger of the King. Earlier, each of these seemed like insurmountable powers or obstacles in front of Peter's way. But then when the king of kings comes, each of these, each of these obstacles bow in reverential obedience. Each of these prostrate themselves before the power of King Jesus. The power of King Jesus is so surreal that Peter can't even believe it. He watches the chains fall off his hands. He follows the commands of the angel. He walks out of the prison. And it's not even until he's standing within the city and the angel disappears that he realizes that all of this is real. And such is the power of King Jesus. Now, before we move on, I want to also note the sustaining power of King Jesus in the midst of a trial. Boys and girls, you might think about yourself being in Peter's place. You might think about what it would be like to know that your friend James was just executed. And now you have been arrested for the sake of the same. And you are kept in this prison knowing that you are going to be executed soon. What sort of state of mind would you be in? How would you handle knowing that that very night you were to be brought out to be killed? Well, when the angel appears in Peter's cell, what is Peter doing? He's sleeping. He's sleeping. And when the angel appears, he fills that cell with a bright light. And what is Peter's response? He continues sleeping. He is sound asleep. And he is resting in the providential care of King Jesus. What in the world can be so powerful to cause a man to sleep while awaiting execution? Perhaps Peter was singing. Perhaps he sang himself to sleep and gave testimony to the guards around him by singing from Psalm 3. I laid down, slept, and woke again, because the Lord sustains my life. I will not fear ten thousand strong who would encircle me in strife. Peter shows us the powerful, sustaining grace of King Jesus when he is able to sleep as if on his own bed while being chained to two guards and awaiting execution. So do you believe that Jesus Christ is king? Again, think about your own life today and think about the way in which the circumstances in your own life or in the world around you seem to say that Christ is not king and that he is not powerfully reigning over all things. You may be tempted right now with some sort of objection from your own life. You say, yeah, but what about this? Doesn't this belie the fact that Jesus Christ is king? Look here, the word of God puts one such objection into the text. So that we are forced to deal with it. What about James? Peter is powerfully rescued by the power of God, but what about James? He died by the sword. It's one thing to revel in the powerful delivery of Peter, but we cannot revel in, the, in Peter's rescue without dealing with the fact that James was executed. Where was King Jesus when, Pete, when James was put to death by the sword? What does James's death reveal about the power of King Jesus? Well, again, rather than being something that we need to ignore, God's word deals with this directly because James's death reveals the greater part of Christ's power found in this text. How so? Well, King Herod did his worst to James. He thought he dealt a devastating blow to this apostle of Christ. He thought that he was bringing his life to an end, that he would sink him lower than the grave. But now we need to look at James and his execution through the lens of the word of God. What happened here? Well, Paul writes in Romans 8 concerning the suffering of God's people in this present time. And listen to the word of God and how it teaches us what happened to James. Paul writes, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let me pause. If God is for us, can Herod be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Can a sword separate you from the love of Christ? That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. James was not separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The sword could not separate him from the love of his Savior. Herod did his worst, and he thought he would destroy. And that sword that was intended to be his end was through the power of King Jesus transformed into a tool that brought James into his everlasting rest. That brought James into the presence of Christ where there is fullness of joy. Can you imagine that moment in which James was hastened into glory? God's word says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Can you imagine James as he came near to face the sore? Can you imagine his heart filled with fear? Here it is. Here is the end. What is going to happen? And in a moment. He is standing in the presence of King Jesus. And Jesus looks upon him, perhaps with tears in his eyes, because he sees his suffering servant, and he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And that sword that was intended to bring great harm instead brought James into an incomprehensible glory, into the fullness of joy and into a perfect everlasting peace. And so here we see in James the power of King Jesus. See his power here on display. See here the way in which he transforms what is intended for the worst of evils into being for his own people the greatest good. Do you see here in our text that Jesus is powerful enough to deliver you from death and then to deliver you even through death? The wages of sin is death. You and I, we will all die. But the free gift of God in Jesus Christ is salvation. It is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Do you see here how Christ's power is put on display over and against the presence of King Herod? This has been the story of God's power throughout the ages. And it will continue until that glorious day when Christ returns. Later in our text, Luke reports that Christ ordered all of these things so that the word of God increased and multiplied. Jesus is orchestrating all of these things because he has gracious designs to save his people from their sins. And so we need to see behind the presence of King Herod, the power of King Jesus, in Martin Luther's hymn, based on Psalm 100 or Psalm 46, one of the lines says this, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Christ simply needs to speak. And his enemies are scattered. Such is the power of King Jesus. Boys and girls, do you believe in the power of King Jesus? Boys and girls, there was once a young boy who wandered away from his home just playing out in the street. And he wandered down the street and around the corner a little bit, just getting lost in the way in which he was playing. And then suddenly he lifted up his eyes and he saw that there were three older boys, way bigger than him, And they were coming toward him intending to do him great harm. He knew that he couldn't run because they were faster than him. And he knew that he really couldn't even fight them because they would well overmatch him. And so he began to tremble with fear, knowing that his own end might be soon that he was going to face the wrath of these three boys, and so he began to just tremble and crouch as they got closer and closer until those three were caught in their own fear, turned, and ran away. The boy had no idea what happened until he turned around and saw that his dad had snuck up behind him. And he filled those boys' hearts with fear, and they ran away quickly. That, in a way, is a picture of what we see here in God's word. We see the enemies of God's people coming quickly to surround them. And it takes one little word from King Jesus, and everything changes. Such is the power of King Jesus. And such is the reality that God's word here reveals for us as his people. And so I want to ask the same question again. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is king? Again, do you believe this not only intellectually, but do you believe it In terms of your own day-to-day life, I want to make this more practical, get more specific with the question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is King? First of all, do you believe in Christ's power to save? Romans 1 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Do you believe in that power of God? Second, do you believe in Christ's power to sanctify? Here God's word shows us Peter. As a man who has obviously grown by the grace of God. Here he is standing strong through the grace and power of King Jesus. But do you believe in Christ's power to sanctify you? Or have you been deceived by Satan into doubting God's power to overcome sin in your life. If so, listen to what the word of God says regarding the power that is at work within you. This is what Paul prays in Ephesians 1. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So Paul begins his prayer saying, I want you to know through the power of the Holy Spirit what is actually true of you. And then he makes three requests that you may know the hope to which he has called you but also in the age to come. Did you hear what the word of God said? The immeasurable greatness of God's power toward you who believe. It is the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead and then seated him above every other power. Do you believe in Christ's power to sanctify you? Third, do you believe in Christ's power to sustain you? Again, until Christ returns, we are going to live out our days in a world marked by that enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This battle will be ongoing until Christ returns. But here in the text, we see that Peter is powerfully sustained in trial and James is powerfully sustained through trial. So do you believe in Jesus' power to sustain you? Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Your greater weakness only exalts and amplifies the power of King Jesus. This reality can be applied to every aspect of your life. Do you believe in Christ's power to face your fears? Do you believe in Christ's power to save the lost, to build his church, to bring prodigals back, to set you free from sin, to work all things to go- for good, to heal broken relationships, to lead you into the future, to provide you according, provide for you according to his promise? Do you believe in Christ's power for present circumstances and future trials? See the word of God, in the word of God, Christ's power on behalf of his people. Let us trust today in and rest upon the power of King Jesus. Think upon these words from Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, we thank you for your present rule and reign over all things. And we trust in your wisdom as you have called us to live out our days as the church in a context marked by this enmity that began at the fall. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith today, that you would cause us to look beyond the presence of any King Herod, to see the power of King Jesus who is orchestrating it all for his own glory and for our good. Lord, will you cause us today by looking at your word to grow in our trust upon the power of King Jesus, that we would first and foremost believe in Christ's power to save, that wonderful, glorious power of the gospel for everyone who believes. Would we trust today in your power to sanctify us, to set us free from besetting sins. To guard us from the temptations, the deceits of our evil one who says, you'll never be free. May we trust in the promise that he who began a good work in us will carry it out to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. May we trust today in your power to sustain us, come what may whether things become more peaceful for us as the church or less, whether we face greater trials and challenges from this world, whatever it may be, may we not worry and fret because of evildoers, but instead trust in your sustaining grace, that power that is made perfect in weakness. Lord Jesus, will you cause us today to be confident in your power that is at work in us. For you are the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we might ask or even think. May we rest today. May we rest today in the power of King Jesus. And as we rest, may we revel in it. May we glorify your name knowing that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.